Hi, everyone. Before we get to our guest this week, we wanted to remind those who are interested that registration remains open for our free webinar, which will take place on February 28th at 7 p.m. That's a Sunday evening. It's part two of our Running Through Menopause series. We will be focusing this time on nutrition and strength training for masters runners. In addition to welcoming our featured guests, Amy Goldsmith, a registered dietitian, and Kelly Redman, a personal trainer, we will also be welcoming back Dr. Toby Beckerman, a menopause expert, who will be answering questions at the end of the webinar. The webinar is free, but sign up must be through Eventbrite. We'll include the link in the show notes, or you can find it on any of our social media handles. Lastly, if you haven't already, please subscribe and review this podcast. We so appreciate when you do. It helps us grow our podcast and bring on great guests. Speaking of great guests, we are so thrilled to welcome Heather Malone Wolf to our podcast this week. Heather is, in her words, 42 years strong. She's a retired professional ballet dancer who discovered that she could run outside and off her treadmill just two years ago at age 40. As you'll hear, Heather won her age group at her very first race, a 5K in a time of just over 20 minutes. She's improved from that time and run a variety of distances and hasn't looked back since. In addition to running, Heather is a mom of two, the director of dance at the Garrison Forest School in Baltimore, and is currently pursuing her graduate degree in nutrition. Heather shares her journey from professional ballerina to runner, who, in her words, is changing the optics of over 40 women of color runners. Heather races on the Charm City Racing Team and is a Run for All Women ambassador. She is also an ambassador for Rabbit and Noon. We loved this conversation and know you will too. Check out our show notes to find out how to follow Heather and Run for All Women, an organization that is using running as a vehicle for social change. As always, thank you so much for listening. And without further ado, here is the incredible Heather Malone Wolf. Heather Malone Wolf, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so excited for you to join us today. To get started, we just wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself to provide some background for our listeners. So why don't you start by sharing where you grew up, your age, where you live now, and just a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I actually grew up like not too far from where I am now. I grew up in uh, Owings Mills, Maryland. So I'm I'm from here. I've been here. Um, my family, we actually live within a five-mile radius. I have two aunts who live next door to each other. We were that family who like my first best friends were my cousins. Like my first memories are with my cousins. Um, and then I was the black sheep of the family. I'll say that I'm the artist. Everybody else are like in government, lawyers. And I'm like, I'm the artist. So at 18, um, I left and I moved every two years for 10 years. And then I knew that I wanted to have the same kind of environment for my children that I had growing up. So I was like, okay, I guess it's time to come back. So I came back. Um, to Maryland, maybe about about 12 years ago. Um, so now I live in Reisterstown, Maryland, which is not that far. My mom lives 20 minutes from me. I see her every day. <laughs> um, and I see my cousins like at least once a week. So yes, that's my little backstory. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, oh, I'm 42. Um, it's so funny. People are always like, do you want to say your age? And I'm like, absolutely. Like, I love the fact that I'm 42. I love the fact that I've done so much and can say I'm 42 and I'm still here and I, I can run around with a four and a six year old. So I am 42 strong. That's what I like to say to people. <laughs> we love that 42 strong. We may steal that from you. That's, that's a great mantra. So just um, going back a little bit, you mentioned that you uh, grew up in the Baltimore area and that you're an artist. So could you share with our listeners a little bit about your art? Well, it's funny. It didn't start off that way. When I was younger, I actually wanted to be the first female in Major League Baseball. I come from a baseball family. My cousins play baseball. I grew up playing baseball. I went to baseball camp. Um, and then one of my best friends danced. And we kind of had like a little argument, disagreement, which was harder, dance or baseball. And I'm like, no, dance. I mean, baseball is harder. He's like, no, dance is harder. And it's like a tea dancing. So I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, that's easy. So um, I auditioned for Baltimore School for the Arts, and 
I fell in love. Like I forgot about baseball. I'm like, baseball, what? Um, and I went there, but I was still like rough and tough around the edges. Like I didn't want to put my hair in a bun. I didn't want to wear pink tights. I, I loved it, but I didn't want to conform to it. Um, and then my first, after my first year, I got accepted into Alvin Ailey's summer program. So mom's like, oh, I don't know about New York, but we'll see. So she let me go because I'm, I've always been that headstrong. I'm going to do it. If I, if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find a way. And my mom kind of knows that, especially as an only child. Um, and I have a great okay, mom. Well, let's, let's dial back just for a minute for our listeners who may not know. First of all, what is the Alvin Alley dance program that you auditioned for and how old were you? Okay. Alvin Ailey is one of the premier dance companies in the country. They are a modern-based African-American dance company. Um, they are amazing. Most of my mentors come from the company. And to be accepted into their summer program um, is a big deal because it's a segue into the second company, which is a segue into the main company. Um, so if you want to have a, a professional career, a modern professional career, most dancers go through uh, Alvin Ailey. And how did you get from, I love baseball to suddenly getting accepted into Alvin Ailey? That's that without, with being rough around the edges, like explain, <laughs> explain that to us and how that happened. Well, I, with my friend dancing, um, I went to a small school for about a year and a half. And luckily I will say by the grace of God, I do have the natural attributes of a dancer. I have you know, I'm naturally flexible. I have a natural turnout. Um, I can see something and pick it up very quickly. So when I went to the audition, they were like, are you sure you haven't danced for? I'm like, no. And they're like, are you sure you didn't train since you were three? And I'm like, no, but I knew I was going to get into that school. Like I, I knew. <laughs> um, and I got in and it was so funny. My mom still has the letter. Like she still has the letter. She was so excited because we're very opposite. I'm like still a tomboy. And my mom is just very like polished, you know, put together. So she's like, oh my goodness, my daughter's going to dance. Like she put me in dance at three and she still has a picture. I think I picked out like the ugliest, gaudiest costume. I hated it there. I'm like, please get me out of there. Um, so the fact that I got in and I was going to try it, she was, she was blown away. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about that, yeah, that first summer. So that was a summer program. Mm -hmm. And so tell us about that. Like, what was that like going into, you know, the premiere, something that, you know, so many dancers look up to as just kind of a dream and a goal. What was that like? It was actually amazing for two, for two reasons. It was amazing because it was my first like time in New York. Um, my mom came for two weeks and she hated it. She was like, I cannot do this drive. New York drives are crazy. You're going to stay with one of my best friends, you know? So, and it was nice that to transition with her, but it was nice to be on my own. So when I saw the city and I saw the dancers, I, I knew being a professional dancer was the path that I was going to take. I was like, this is for me. But at the same time, Alvin Ailey, um, for those of you who don't know, it is a modern based company. So they do, you know, a lot of rolling on the floor, a lot of body work. I was like, okay, this is not for me. Where are my tutus? Where are my tiaras? Where are my point shoes? Which is the opposite of who I thought I was. So it's interesting. I feel like dancers grow up a lot faster or athletes in general. I feel like females in athletics grow up a lot faster than say the girl who, you know, goes to school and comes home or just, you know, has a hobby. I've found out a lot about myself that summer, like who I thought I was in my mind wasn't who I really was or that I could be multifaceted. Like I could be a tomboy and like sweats, but I could also be this ballet dancer who puts on a tutu in tiaras and goes on stage. And I think that's something, a lesson that I've taken with me as a teacher, as a mom, like you don't have to be one thing. Um, and I, I'll attribute it to my mom, like anything I wanted to try, she's like, you can try it. If it's 14 weeks, you're going to follow through with it. We're going to follow through. And that taught me follow through, but it also taught me that I can try anything and whether I succeed or not, I can try, you know. So, so what happened after that summer when you kind of realized too, that you were more into the ballet than the modern dance was what, what was your trajectory like after that? Oh, I knew I was going to be a ballet dancer. I came back to school and my, it's funny, the teachers there saw me as a ballet dancer, but I didn't. And I came back, I was like, you were right. <laughs> like, so it's funny, my track went a lot faster because when my body did what it naturally does, like I got moved up to higher levels uh, faster than my peers. 
I got into other programs for the summer. I got roles that I didn't think coming in that I would have gotten. Um, and it just solidified like where I was going and I was picked, you know, it's funny. Like, I think every coach, every teacher, you know, they see in a group like, okay, those two or those three, those five, we can cultivate that talent because it will turn into something. So luckily I was one of those girls who was, you know, handpicked and said, okay, we're going to help you get to where you want to go because we see you um, as a professional ballet dancer. Talk to us a little bit about that as coaches ourselves. Like what, what did your coaches do to help you progress and how did they kind of nurture that to the next level for you? What well, a teacher, uh, her name is Stephanie Powell. I still talk to her at least twice a month. So, like she's still my mentor. Like even being at Garrison, I'm like, Miss Stephanie, I can't find a song. Or Miss Stephanie, I need a costume. She teaches at uh, Carver, which is a magnet school in Baltimore County. Uh, I call her my dance mom. Um, she took us to New York. She took us to auditions. She took us to performances. She's like, if you are going to do this, I need to immerse you in this so you can see, you know, what you're getting yourself into. If you really want to do this, um, she introduced us to professional dancers. She taught us, you know, how to walk, how to stand, how to, you know, introduce ourselves. She introduced us to directors. So it was nice to have a teacher take you and say, I see the talent. And I'm going to help you to the next step. That's awesome, and that's I think a, a sign of a good uh, of a good um, coach or mentor is not just the um, you know the the exercise or the physical part of the training, but like you said, kind of the all around, like immersing you in it and and helping helping you the the poise and the and all of the other skills outside of of just the dancing and the you know the flexibility or the moves or the routine. So that's that's phenomenal. So. So how did, so to kind of get us from where, where you were, like, where did you go? And we know you kind of moved around before you came back to, to this area, but where did that, where did that dance career take you and how did it end you up where you are now? So after graduating, and I told, so I love telling this story because it just kind of shows people who I am. I went to college. My mom is a photographer and my dad is a lawyer. And you would think the lawyer would want the child to go to college where my dad's like, college will always be there. College is a building. You can go to college anytime. Where my mom, who's the artist, is like, no, you're going to college. So I went to Mercyhurst College in Erie, Pennsylvania. I went there for um, a year. I got there and I was miserable. Like I, they brought the dancers and the football players in like two weeks early for pre-training. Um, and the first night there were, you know, girls drinking and throwing up and parties. And I called my mom and said, what is this? Like, I'm here to dance, you know, but I had had that experience because I'd been going away since I was 14. So I knew how to conduct myself without, you know, parental vision, you know. Um, and whereas most kids, it's their first time alone, you know, or on their own is college. That's I can't do this. I was like, I'm meant to be in the company. I have to, I can't, you know, like just stick it out. So I did because I'm was a spoiled only child. I'm still the only child, but I was very spoiled. I said, I will flunk out of college if you don't let me leave. I was like, I will, I will. And I was on full scholarship. They still paid room and board. I was like, I will waste the little money that you are paying if you do not let me leave. So my dad drew up a contract. He said, we will let you go to New York. You have one year to make it. If you don't make it within a year, he said, we'll pay first month's rent, last month's rent, and your moving costs to move to New York. They bought me a bed. Um, if you don't make it in a year, you will go back to college no crying, no fussing, no failing, you know, and I also said to them, now it's very different. Like you can do a lot with a college degree in dance, but back then they wanted to see if you could dance. And I said, what am I going to do with a college degree in dance? I was like, I'm, I want to dance. So he said, you have a year. I was like, give me a month <laughs> because I, that mentality of if I want to do something, I'm going to make it happen. So I went to Dance Theater of Harlem summer program with my best friend, uh, Angela Harris, and after the end of the summer, they were like, we would like you to stay and dance for our second company. So I was like, see dad. <laughs> so he was like, okay, well you stayed, you're in a second company. You're not getting paid because it's the second company. How are you going to support yourself? So I said, okay. I said, I'll find a job. So do you all remember the um, big toy store in New York? F.E.O. Schwartz is in the movie Big. Oh yeah, with the piano, the big piano. So, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I R.I.P. Yeah, I know. I went there thinking I was going to be like in the Star Wars, tomboy, the Star Wars, the Legos like section. I was so excited. They put me in the Barbie section. 
so upset. And like they had these big parties for like the like big actors who would come in um, for like the weekend or like these celebrities would buy out F.E.O. Schwartz and they would have parties for their kids. So like I moonlighted as the black Barbie and I like go in there and like I had like a feather boa, like a whole Barbie outfit that I would have to wear. And I'm like, this is not me, you know, but it paid well. And it was like, I got to work a limited number of hours and I was home by like 11 or like, you know, nine, whereas my friends would wait tables and they wouldn't get home till 1.30 in the morning and they were working for tips where I was making a good chunk of money for a young artist. So I was like, okay, you may not like this, but it's helping you to get to where you want to go. So I sucked it up and I did it for a year. And I went to Nashville Ballet. Once again, love the company, love the people. I didn't love Nashville. Nashville was very segregated. And I remember um, being after a performance, we had, you know, they have the big parties. Um, and one of the board members called me, girl, I said, girl, go. And I said, oh, I can't stay here. And I told my director, he was like, I'll address it. I said, I can't be in an environment that's still stuck in the 1950s. And I remember standing in line at a party and this woman said, I need a red, I need a white, I need two this, I need two that. It was like five drinks that she ordered. And the wait staff was taking, you know, I mean, he was making five drinks and he was by himself. And she was like, good help, which is so hard to find these days. And I was like, okay, this is not the place for me because I knew, although I loved it artistically and I loved the people just spiritually, it wasn't a place that I could be and be comfortable with people who were still treating brown people a certain way. So um, I was there and then I love before you before you go on with that point, I want to ask you something. I'm, I'm derailing for a second, but okay. I think what you just said is very relevant to something I'm following. I'm not sure if I, I would assume you are too, and, and that's what's happening in the Indianapolis arts community. Um, there was a big um, controversy this week because in the in the Indianapolis has a robust ballet community and arts community, mm -hmm. but there was a job opportunity that was advertised. And initially in the job description, it said that they needed someone who would appeal to, and they used the word white. And then later the description was um, adjusted, corrected, however you want to say it, but it was, it was awful. And many people saw it and there, that has sort of opened Pandora's box into some of the problems that still exist within the arts community between the board Mm -hmm. and the artists and the community. And um, since you touched on that, I would love to hear sort of your thoughts on that and whether you think it's improved since your experience in Nashville. And I didn't mean to interrupt your story, so keep going. I just wanted to put that in there when you talked about that. Oh, no problem. Um, I do think it's improved. I mean, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. I remember um, when I was with one of the companies, I won't name the company because I, you know, um, I got picked for, for a piece. I auditioned with a bunch of other girls. I got picked for the lead. And we were on stage rehearsing, lighting crew, costumes. And the director was like, um, the lighting's too dark. So instead of fixing the lighting, he said, can you um, go tonight and buy some makeup that's two shades lighter because you're too dark for this piece? So my father said, my, is a lawyer. He's a civil rights attorney at that. So I called him. I was like, you know, he's like, I'm not there. You have to use your voice. What are you, what are you going to do? Um, so I, the next day, you know, I came in and I said, we have to have the meeting with HR. I said, we need to call HR. I went, you know, I said, we need to sit down. Um, and I said, that's racist. Like you cannot tell a, you know, and at that point I was like 22, you know, so imagine a 22 year old in, in a room with like three white men, you know, um, but I knew, you know, you had those pivotal points. It doesn't matter if you're brown, if you're a woman, like if you're in any kind of minority group, you have those moments where you have to stand up for yourself or will you be able to look at yourself in the mirror when you come home? And I knew I could lose my job, but still feel confident and sure in myself and be able to look in the mirror or I was going to go buy lighter makeup and hate myself for it. Um, so we had a talk and sometimes I like to say, sometimes it's blatant ignorance and racism. And a lot of times I'm learning with a lot of my friends who are trying to educate themselves. It's just lack of knowledge, you know? And I, like, I don't like, you know, my husband hates the word ignorant. I use the word ignorant a lot, but the definition of ignorance is lack of knowledge. And when you 
give people the information who are open and receptive to it, they're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even think about it that way. So luckily in that meeting, it came out with, I really didn't realize that I offended you in that way. I didn't see it. So I mean, and that, that helped me out because I adored him and I loved him. But my talking to him, he understood what he was saying and how that made me feel. And I'm like, it's like blackface. Like, do you, <laughs> like we're going backwards. And he didn't even attribute the two. You know, he was just like, I can't see you. You're amazing. And I said, well, if I was too dark for the piece, you shouldn't have picked me for the piece. You know, if it just comes down to a lighter skinned person, you should have picked a lighter skinned person. Um, and then sometimes there is just blatant, you know, racism in the words that they use. Like I remember um, I was in a review in San Francisco Chronicle when I was at the Oakland Ballet and like the words they would use for my white counterparts, you know, um, ethereal and light and airy, you know, and then they would use for me earthy and, you know, um, uh, healthy. It was always, you know, you could two distinctive um, adjectives, even though we were doing the same piece, we could have the same like body structure. So the wordage, I'm like, oh, you know, and I remember when I got called because I did go through a time where um, I had like eating issues. Um, I won't say a full bone eating disorder, but definitely on the borderline. So, you know, being 23 and hearing, you know, being 99 pounds and hearing that you're, you're healthy, that's just a cycle, you know, but then seeing that that's how most brown girls are, you know, put in that box with certain words. Um, but now I think through social media, I think through like brown girls do ballet. I think there's so many outlets that girls have now that show um, how amazing we've always been. And I always tell like, like my friends and I'm like, we were in that weird like era where like nobody knows about us because it's like, they were like the newspapers and you're like, you can go back to like the eighties and the seventies where there's like all these clippings. And then like, we were like the VHS era. Like nobody looks at VHS. Like all of my dancing on VHS and I'm not going to pay $3,000 to get all that converted. And then you have the social media era where you can do a performance and upload it in five seconds. Um, so I feel like my generation, oh, every generation, because I stand on the shoulders of the generation that came above me who couldn't even get into companies. Like I remember my friends and I, when we would audition for a company, and it's sad to say this, but it's so true. We would go to the website and we would see if they had a brown girl in the company first. And if they didn't, it was like, okay, well, you can audition for that company because you'll be that one. So unfortunately, every company I danced for, unless it was a African-American dance company, I was always one. I was always the only one. It was one girl and one boy, always. Um, now you can look at companies and there's not enough. There's still not enough um, because you should be picked off of your talent, not how, you know, you look. We're not in, you know, Europe, you know, we're not in Russia. It's not, you know, um, it's America. We should be celebrated for different bodies, different skin complexions, different tones. So I see it changing. Um, I don't see it changing fast enough, but I can definitely look at the di three different generations and see the change that has happened over the years. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, UFOs. If you're a longtime listener, you know that UFO shoes are an integral part of our recovery. And we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. UFOs are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often, the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? UFOs reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of UFOs and check them out now on their website at UFOs, O-O-F-O-S dot com. To pivot a little bit, you are now, tell us where you are now, what you do for a living and how you found running. Well, I'm, right now I'm the director of dance at Garrison Forest School. I love my school. I went there for middle school and I always knew that I wanted to come back um, so girls wouldn't have to choose between their passion or their education. Because once I left Garrison, um, as I said earlier, I was bored throughout my um, academic career. And I, I'm a nerd. Like, I love reading. I love school. 
So I didn't, I never wanted a girl to choose between the two. And I wanted to educate parents also to know that your daughter can get a free ride at college for dance and double major in something else. Um, so I will say like as a kudos, every year that I've been there, a student has gone off to uh, major in dance and something else since I've been there. So like the word is getting out and parents are starting to understand that dance is no different than lacrosse or field hockey or any other sport. Like I like to call dance the athletic sport. I had three levels because I think dance is for everyone. Like I remember an alum came up to me and she said, when I was a, you know, at Garrison, the old director said, you were too heavy to dance. And I love dancing. So I never picked that as my sport. And I would never want any girl to feel like they couldn't do anything, whether it's tennis, field hockey, dance, painting, debate team. Like we were cultivating a world where girls can do anything, you know, because they can, you know. So I always make sure that we have a plethora of costumes where girls you know, feel comfortable, like you can do anything. If you want to dance, my door is open. Um, so that's that at Garrison. And then I've always- that's, I've, uh, but Just really quick, that's really beautiful what you're doing because um, of course the culture in dance, like many sports tends to, unfortunately when um, girls' bodies are changing, it can cause many girls to under eat because mm-hmm. they don't want to fully develop and reach puberty. I mean, of course that happens and running, and there's of course a lot of discussion about um, reds and mount and undernourishment. And so the fact that you are creating a space for girls during a pivotal time in their lives, uh, it's, it's it's really great because I would imagine you are helping them to accept, like you mentioned before, whether they are an apple or an orange, um, accept their bodies. And uh, do you also provide a framework for girls? as they're developing on sort of how to fuel their bodies as dancers? Do you talk about that? And how do you go about that? Well, not to segue, but yes. Um, I feel like everything we do in life, like as we become older and we're like in our forties and we look back, it's like, well, what what did I need that I didn't get? Um, because I developed, like I said, eating issues throughout high school. And like, luckily I had the mom that was like, we're not doing this. Like either we're gonna get you help and you're going to change or we're going to remove the thing that's making you, you know, I remember my best friend was like, I'm telling your mother, you're, you're not eating, you're, you're doing this, you're over-exercising. Um, so I'm in grad school um, for nutrition and the school is helping pay for my um, grad school. So my goal is to create a preschool through upper school nutrition curriculum um, for the girls, because being an all girls school, any, any, all girls school. It's not just, you know, mine. This comp, like I said, this competition. And I see the girls, you know, even as far as like second grade, I'll hear them in the bathroom, look at my tummy, my tummy over my jumper, or, you know, or I can't eat this because, um, so we need to start with the little ones. You know, like I talked to my kids about how many uh, colors did you eat today? Like how many, and just eating is, is a healthy part of life you know, and then in middle school is having, we have a class called discoveries. And I went and talked to the girls about, you know, nutrition, like their concept of a calorie was so far off. I'm like, girls, you know, like, like calories are bad. I'm like, no calories are fuel. You need calories to fuel your body, you know? And they're like, this is bad. So like hearing everything and we're a boarding school also. Um, and I'm an, I am an eighth grade advisor. So seeing, being late there, seeing the girls over exercise, like, we, you know, seeing girls work out in the morning on their lunch break after school. I feel like if we had a nutrition curriculum and girls knew how to fuel their bodies correctly, and it came from, I mean, not to knock men, but it came from a female who knows your body changes throughout the month. When your menstrual cycle comes, you may crave this more. Your body needs something else will help. And then being a crossover teacher from lower school to upper school, I gained that relationship with the girls. I told like in my like paper, you have to write a paper to say, why did you pay for my school? Um, You know, I said, why are we sending girls off campus to see, you know, a nutritionist? I said, that creates a stigma. Like, oh, we know she's leaving because she has eating issues. I said, or when they do have to eat in the dining hall, you know, they, they have no one. So why not have somebody on campus 
who they've known since the fourth grade or sixth grade or ninth grade is going to say, Miss Heather, can you eat lunch with me today? Can you walk me into the cafeteria? Or instead of leaving campus, it's like, oh, well, she has her free because, we, you know, the upper schools have freeze. Um, they come see me during their free. Nobody knows. They just know this student has a free. She could be in the library. She could be anywhere, you know. And the school, you know, have schools, companies like, oh, we didn't think of that. Like, good. I'm glad <laughs> I thought about it for you. Um, so hopefully in... Um, I'll graduate in two years. I'm taking the slow track because, you know, I do have two young kids and I want to do it the right way. Um, but back to running. I've always been a runner. I was a treadmill runner. Um, I've been running since my 20s and I started running for the wrong reasons. I was that dancer who danced from eight to 12. We had lunch from 12 to one. I would go to the gym next door to our um, studio. I would run eight miles for an hour, come back to rehearsal, then rehearse till six. Um, because in my mindset, I had to look a certain way. And being an African-American ballet dancer, our bodies are built differently. Our muscular structure is very different. Um, our muscles are a little more dense. And being young and being in, our, in my 20s, I didn't know this is your body. Like you can run for days. You'll be skinny. You won't have any strength, but your muscle structure will still look the same. It will just, you know, it'll just be weak. Um, so I've been running forever. And then like a year ago, a year and a half ago now, my husband and my, one of my best friends, like, why, why are you still on the treadmill? Like you're fast. You're running fast on the treadmill for no reason. I'm like, I'm not running outside. And it's so funny. Like, I like to look back at the different points in my life because two years ago, you have never gotten me outside to run. I'm like, it's hot. It's cold. I used to call myself a climate controlled runner. I'm like, I'm in the gym. It's climate control. Like, cool. Why would I go outside? And so my husband was like, just try it. And one thing I will say about my husband, like he knows me really well. Like I'll fight like tooth and nail, but he kind of knows when like I'll like love something. He's like, just try it. So like I started off five minutes, like at the end of like teaching at Garrison, like my um, one of my friends who we've been friends, the friend who got me the job, Laura, um, I was like, I'm going outside. I'm going outside for five minutes. And she would cheer me on. She like my cheer squad. And I started with five minutes and I was like, okay, this is not bad. And then I did 10 minutes and I did 15 minutes and I did, you know, and all my friends were like, Heather, you're really fast. I'm like, no, I'm just running. They're like, no, no, no. This is your first time running outside. And you're running like, and at that time, I didn't know what a 740, like you're running a 740, a 745. And you've never run outside. I'm like, I'm just running. They're like, no, no, no. you need to race. I'm like, I'm not racing. I'm not going to stand with a whole bunch of people and run. It's crazy. <laughs> so once again, my best friend and my husband were like, just try it. Just do, just try one race. And um, I did a race of this May of 2019, because 2020 we were in the, you know, because I haven't been running outside that long. Um, and I did a 5K and my friend was, I was like, oh, well, you'll probably be waiting for me. She's like, no, Heather, you'll be waiting for me. And I was so nervous. And I, it's funny, I had so many different emotions that day. I was nervous. I was disgusted at the porta potties. I was like, what are these people doing? I was like, what? <laughs> you know, because think about it, like, you know, this ballet dancer who's always run in the gym, climate control. I'm like, what are they doing? He's like, what do you think they're doing? I'm like, no, 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 that's disgusting. All these like long lines. She's like, oh, you'll be one of them one day. I'm like, this is my first and only race. I'm out here because of you all. And it's so funny, like, dance is a community, but the running community is very, like, very different. Like, dance, you're a community, but you're all out for the same role. So you could be friends with somebody, and you could turn around, and that same person is talking about you behind your back. Um, whereas the running community, like, I finished the race, and I, like, got first place in my age group. And I was like, I didn't know what that was at that point either. I was like, okay, all right. But the camaraderie and everybody like cheering, like everybody on, I'm like, they don't know me. Like there's like saying, like, it was amazing to me. And I was drawn in and people were like, well, do you like it because you won? And I'm like, no, I liked it because of the community. Like everybody was there for each other. Everybody was cheering each other on. Like I saw a mom cross and I saw her babies. I started crying and she's like, why are you crying? I'm like, look at that mom, she's amazing. So I was just drawn in from that, that moment of just like the energy and the family oriented feeling of the run community. It's like, if you're one of us, you're one of us. Like 
It doesn't matter if you finish first or you finish, you know, 115th. Like you finished and we're going to celebrate you. Okay. So you started running basically at age 40 because you're 42. Yeah. Uh-huh. So your first 5K, you ran as a master's runner mm-hmm. and you won your age group, which is incredible. Um, and you felt not only wonderful because you were able to finish a 5K outside and race, but also you enjoyed the community. What has your running looked like since then? Once you realized that you were competitive and fast, what happened after that? What's funny, I didn't really know I was competitive because I was still new. So I didn't understand the whole, like when my friend was like, you won, I was like, okay. Yeah, like I didn't really, you know, I'm like, but she won first. And, and I think that's a competitive nature of being a dancer. Like there's always something higher to achieve to. I'm like, okay, I won my age group, but I didn't win first place. So there's always, there's somewhere else I can go. Um, so from there, I was like, well, I, I need to see if this is a fluke. Cause I thought it was a fluke. Cause I'm always in the back of my mind, which is not a good thing, which I'm working on even at 42, like owning, like being good at something and owning it and not saying, oh, you only won because, or you only, you know, did this because this happened. So, but at that time I was like, I need to see if it's a fluke. So I was like, I'm signing up for Baltimore Women's Classic, you know? So she was like, well, I'm not racing that one, but I'll come and I'll, you know, so she drove me, she was there and I ran and I won my age group again. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, maybe, maybe we're on to something. She's like, Heather, listen to me. You're, you're fast. Like you can do this and compete. You, you need to do this. So I think it was from there that I started to see, okay, I'm on to something. But even from there, there were these girls who all like had the remind you, like I'm was new to this novice. They all had these shirts that like had these rabbits on it. And I'm like, who are the rabbit girls? I'm like, yes, I won my age group. I was like, but my goal was to be one of those rabbit girls. I was like, they like took like first, second, third. I was like, that's my goal. And like, I found them on like Instagram. And I'm like, what are they doing? You know, which is a double edged sword. Like, I think, you know, social media can be a great thing as a driving force to help you and be a part of the community. But like, I like to tell my students because, you know, they're in that realm of social media, like Instagram is the highlight reel of life. It's not real life. It's your highlight reel. You know, like who's going to post, like I post bad days, but most people don't post bad days. Like it's your highlight reel. Um, So it's a double-edged sword, but I found all three of those girls. I was like, I'm going to like see what they do. See, you know, I was like, those are the girls I want to beat. And it's funny. I'm kind of friends with them now. And I'm like, I used to call you all the rabbit girls. And I was like, you know, um, and it's funny, you know, going a year ahead now, um, I'm an ambassador for rabbit, which is funny. So now like, I didn't even know about rabbit. Now I'm one of the rabbit girls. And my, my friend is like, do you see like, like the universe work? Like, you wanted to be a rabbit girl and now you're one of, you know, you're a rabbit girl. I'm like, yeah, but she's like, Heather, no, own that. Like own that and live in that. And I did Charles Street 12. And I will say it was one of my highs for two reasons. My mom, my husband's a musician. So like out of 20, but pre-COVID out of 28, 31 days out of the month, he's probably home maybe four days out of a month because he travels internationally. Hence my mom living 20 minutes away and like seeing her every day. Um, My husband was in town. My parents came to the race and I thought they were going to be like, you know, after the finish line, like text my friend, like through my like watch, you know, she's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm almost at the finish line. She's like, what? Are you crazy? (laughs) Like, I'm not there. So she ran. So I didn't think because she didn't think I was going to be that fast. I didn't think my family was going to be anywhere like near the finish line. I turned the corner of Under Armour and like my kids are there like screaming like mommy, like I'm running and I'm like almost like crying because you had that mom moment where you're like for your kids to see you go from not doing something and like to running and to like reaching a goal of a finish line. I think that's a big deal for not only girls, or mom of daughters to see, I think it's really important for moms of sons. I think it's important for moms to see that their moms are strong. Your mom just doesn't like make your lunch and, you know, pull your clothes out. Like my son used to say, mom, you're a superhero. Like you're my superhero. And I think that's great. I think we need to change the way 
that the world looks at moms because we're multifaceted. We're not just, you know, home takers. We're runners, you know, we're in the boardroom, we're teachers, you know, moms can do everything. And I think it starts with our kids when they're young. If we raise little boys to see that moms are superheroes, then when they get older and they're in the boardroom or they're wherever, they're like, oh no, she can stand next to me because I remember what my mom did. So yes, absolutely. I want this female sitting next to me and not my secretary or my assistant or what have you. So it's so funny. Like my mom, like I said, my mom's a photographer. She actually has a picture, like a high five, my son. So it's so funny. My best friend's like, you know, you lost three seconds from that race, taking the time to high five your kids. I'm like, Yes, but how many people get that? It's worth moment? it though, right? We always yes. think it's totally worth it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I had that picture. It's framed. Like, it'll be a, something that both of us, you know, get to look back on. So that was one high. And then the second high was, um, I didn't know at that point that I'd won my age group. So when they were calling me, like, I knew I was like ahead. And it was a big, you know, Charles 12, a, a huge race. So I was like, my goal was to be under 145. And then my second goal was to be top 20 in women. Like, so I had goals. And then like secretly that I'm like, you know how you have a goal that you like only tell yourself because you're like, this is crazy. My like secret goal was to win like my age group. But I was like your master's runner with a lot of other master runners. So I didn't tell anybody that goal. So when they were calling the names and they called my name for master runner, like everybody looked around and they didn't look at me. They looked at every white woman around. So that was the second huge moment. Like not only my kids being there and being able to see mommy going to podium, but seeing this sea of, and I, there weren't that many brown runners in that race. Um, but to see everybody turn around and say, oh, she won, you know? And I am that person because I am an artist and I'm a performer like, yes, you know? And I like to walk up like, you know, yes, I did win. And that was, I guess, kind of the, because it was only my third race in the shift of okay the running community is different from the dance community but it's because it's very accepting but it's only accepting to a certain degree at times because nobody expected that little brown girl over there to win that race and when I walked up it was like oh you know and they were like the oh you know the claps they're, they're claps so the claps are very different you know they're, they're very different and we, we can acknowledge that they're very different but I, I lived in that moment. I honored that moment. And that was, I guess, the moment where I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, if there's something that I'm going to pivot to, then I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to use my voice to say, OK, yes, a brown woman that's 42, that's a mom of two kids can start running and win races. And I think that crosses like so many borders of like women who are 40 like I can't run like yes like when I tell people I'm like I started at five minutes I ran for five minutes and I wanted to die and then I did 10 I did you know like if you want to do it there's a way you can do it you know no matter who you are or where you come from um and people like say oh well you were a dancer you were an athlete I'm like no dancing is very different than running where running is very different from dancing the two have no correlation like whatsoever like maybe endurance because you know dancing on stage for two hours gives me the endurance to run but muscle the muscular structure everything you use is is very different um so from there I said okay so there's a run ambassadorship that I'm a part of called run for all women so it's like if I'm going to use my voice I need to use it in the right way and not just like, you know, Instagram posts. Like if I'm going to do it, I need to do it through action. Cause you know, I don't, I don't, I don't mind like, you know, posts on Instagram or like the black squares, but like my whole thing to like my friends who are allies, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you, what are you doing behind the action of the black square or the post or the story? Um, so I sent in my video and I got selected. Didn't think I was going to get selected, but like, once again, working on that. Um, and I've done runs with them. Um, we did the, I don't know if you've heard of um, Women Who Run the Vote, um, that big campaign. So we're, you know, a part of that. So it's it's Run for All Women, the group that's run by Allison Dessier. Yeah. Yes. Okay. How, what is your group doing right now in COVID and, and what can the listeners do to support Run for All Women? Well, a lot of stuff we do um, through COVID is, is virtual. 
Um, like we had like runs for Brianna. We had run for all women. We did get together. Like it was nice. A lot of the ambassadors, we met in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and we ran the last leg of that relay to um, the King Monument. Um, so that was that was nice. Um, we haven't gotten together because of, of course, of COVID, but we do stay connected, you know, through social media, through posts, through sending things out. Um, like we'll do group run, like small group runs, like throughout whatever city people are, um, are attached to, but we haven't been able to come together as one um, big group, unfortunately. Um, but I always try to model, like, you know how you have people, whether you know them or not, you're like, what would such and such do? Like I have all these like little voices, I'm like what would Allison do? And I love Allison because she's unafraid. Like she is for the cause, like she will get flack from what she says, but because she knows it's the right thing to do, she's gonna persevere. So I always try to say, okay, even like it worked, like I know I'm gonna get flack for saying this in the department meeting, but I know I need to do this for my Brown students. So I'm gonna be the voice that's gonna say this because if I don't say it, who's going to say it for them? Um, so being with them, I always tell Allison that it's helped me with my running and it's attached me to a bigger runner, run community, but it's also given me a voice in other facets of my life to not be afraid to speak up for people. Because, you know, as a brown person, it is hard because you feel like you're doing the work all the time. Or if you do say something, you know, you're going to get reprimanded or it's going to come back on you or you're going to be the, the, you know, I hate the term angry black female when you're just trying to create, you know, equality. But she's taught me that if we don't say something, then nothing's going to change. So I always say, even with dance, like if you don't see it, you don't, there's no way to conceptually believe that you can do it. Like when Kamala Harris was, you know, vice president, my daughter was like, oh my gosh, she looks like me. So when, when you see yourself, you know that, okay, if that person can do it, then I can do it. Um, so I feel like the running community is welcoming. I just think that it's easier to post on a running magazine, a white girl running, because we know they're mostly white women run, than a woman in her 50s who may weigh 170 pounds. Because I, I know a lot of brown women who run, we just don't see them, you know? Um, hence, um, Black Girl Run. Like, there are groups everywhere, you know? Like, I'm part of Black Girls Run for Owings Mills. We have a huge group. Um, I just think it's not seen. So I think... Once again, the higher, you know, bees, the people who make the decisions, the magazine publications, just need to see that their community is bigger than they they realize. And I think that'll open up the community even more. I remember, um, if you don't know the dancer, Misty Copeland, um, she's a principal with ABT. When she got her first principal role, ticket sales jumped 50%. Like they saw a whole audience that they hadn't seen previously because, people didn't want to see something that didn't look like, you know, them all the time. Whereas you may have had a patron who would buy a ballet ticket, you know, to maybe one show, but it's like, oh, you have dancers who look like me. I'm going to be a, a season subscriber. I feel like the same, it's the same thing with, with um, running. When you see yourself, it's like, oh, I'm going to buy a subscription to running magazine or, oh, I want to run this race because, oh, I saw this brown woman who's 42 has these two wild kids running around jumping for their mom you know, I can do it also, or somebody who's, who's overweight. I mean, I think it, it crosses the gamut of, it's easy to put the picture in front of the world of, this is easy. This is what we think of. This is what we see all the time. And I think it, it's fear, you know, a lot of times, like, well, if we, if we're the company that steps out, if we're the group that steps out, you know, what will happen? Will still people, you know, will they want to join us? Will they buy our magazine? Will they buy our product? instead of looking at if we put this person out here, our product will explode because we're opening a market to people who didn't even realize, you know, we were there in the first place. So before we close, we just wanted to ask you, what advice do you have to um, those out there listening to your story that may not fit the box of a new runner? In other words, someone who is a master's runner or someone who feels they don't have the running experience to start now what advice do you have to them? And um, what what would you say to those who are struggling right now to stay motivated? So two questions. Okay. I guess the first thing I would say is like, why? Like, why would you think that you can't or that you shouldn't? Like I said, I started at five minutes, like I ran for five minutes and I thought I was going <laughs> to fall out and pass out, but you keep going. And 
I feel it's like really important for, for women, for moms to find that space. Like I wake up at 520 every morning and like that is my time. Like people are like, are you crazy? Like you run and you work and you go to grad school. And I'm, I'm like, but that when the sun comes up, like when I got injured and I didn't have that, that time and that space, I could see a change in my personality. And I was like angry mom, angry wife. Like we need that time and that space. So I would just tell people to, to do it, to, to take that time and to carve out that time for yourself. Even if it's a 15 minute walk, you can start by walking. And that walk can turn into a jog, that jog can turn into a run. And don't worry about a pace. Like I said in the beginning, I didn't even know what a, what a pace was. I was just running. So even if you never run a race and you never just go out and just take that time for yourself and just run. Like running is the most, with everything I've done, surprisingly, running is like the most, or I should say the closest thing I've ever felt to performing on stage. Even when I'm running by myself, I get that same high running as I did when the lights were shining on me and the curtain was coming up, like the curtain coming up, this is going to sound so corny, but the curtain coming up is the same way I feel when the sun comes up. It's like, okay, like living in that light. And I feel like whether you live in that light by yourself on your run or in the run group or in a race, finding that light is going to just do something to your spirit and your soul that you'll be able to take and sprinkle in other places in your life. That's beautiful. I think we're going to end on that note. Heather, it's been such a pleasure to get Thank to know you. you and hear your story. I'm sorry if I talk, I talk really fast sometimes. I'm sorry. If it was hey, we do too. So <laughs> we can understand. Good. Okay. So, no, you have, you really remind us too, Heather, as you know, we've been, um, we, we think of ourselves as, as runners who started later in life because we didn't start until we were in our 20s. But so we've been running for 20 years and you really lose perspective on what is so special about running. So to talk to somebody like you who's just getting into it now and that describing those feelings of that, that light coming on and um, the community that you felt in that first race, like it reminds us why we love running so much. So that to us is like such a delight to be able to hear again and remind us, oh yeah, that's why, that's why we love love running. So really um, appreciate that reminder, especially now when we don't have races and we don't always have a direction to our running, but just remembering that fundamental of why, why we love the running and we don't need the races and we don't need all those bells and whistles that we had pre COVID to, to remember why we love it so much. And it's true. Like being injured taught me that because I was like, like I would wake up at 5.20. I'm like, oh, I have nowhere to go. I can't do anything. <laughs> and then getting back to it, I'm like, oh. Thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Well, we thank hope you that we so will much. see you out on the race circuit once we yes, all get back. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, you too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at julieandlisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more and be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.